which is just a little book right before Revelation. And Jude writes here, Beloved, this is verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turned the grace of our Lord into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. Every generation, in every generation, Christians have had to do exactly that, to earnestly contend for the faith. Some more than others. Even today, in this world that we live in, there's others who are contending for the faith at the very risk of their lives. Some of them are having to lay down their lives for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. I suppose we are blessed and fortunate that that has not happened to us yet. But nevertheless, we in our generation will have to contend earnestly for the faith. So we need to know what we believe. Because during times particularly like today of natural disasters, of wars, of terrorism, of injustice, of chaos, people will ask questions and make comments about God about the Bible, be that in the workplace or school or university or just a neighbor across the garden fence. And some of these questions that we'll ask you, they themselves will question everything that you believe in. Some will be easy answered, some will be difficult. But one way or another, you're going to have to come up with answers. You're going to have to be able to understand to be able to give a sensible answer. Now, you must remember that people who ask these questions, make comments, do so for various reasons. Let me just mention a few. First of all, it may be to deflect you or to provide a, a smokescreen, particularly if you have initiated the conversation in your personal witness to somebody you work with or you live beside or live with or whoever. Oftentimes when you begin to witness, particularly if, if it gets a little bit pointed and you begin maybe even unknowingly to put your finger on a particular issue, oftentimes, and you've probably experienced this, where people will deflect that and, and ask you something uh, as a smokescreen. Just ask you anything. Where did Cain get his wife? You know, all these things. How big is Noah's Ark? You know, was that possible to build things? Anything at all comes in their mind just to deflect you, to get you off the subject that you were on that was beginning to hit home. So you have to understand sometimes that's what happens. Other times they ask questions and make comments simply because they're being hostile. They don't like Christianity. They don't believe in God. And they're very hostile to anything that's to do with Christianity. You being a Christian, you become in the firing line for their hostility. 
Others it may be because they're simply flippant or they're just smart alecks. And you get those too, don't you? We've all run into the smart alecks. Others it may be because they're very sincere and they are genuinely seeking the truth. Thank God for those. And inevitably and eventually, if you're any kind of a Christian or witness at all, someone of that elk will cross your path and they will be genuinely searching for the truth. Some may even be under conviction. Holy Spirit's already dealing with them. And you may be the person that is maybe last in that line that the Holy Spirit has used to convict them. They may ask you a very simple question and you may give them a very simple answer, but that may be just what they need at the time and the Holy Spirit can use that. Or they may simply have no Christian or even religious upbringing whatsoever and they just may be curious. Lots of people are just curious. They're not even wanting to become a believer or even be religious, but they're just curious. They just want to know some things. Or... This is the best one. Maybe somebody that you have gained their confidence. That when they're in your company, that they feel safe and confident enough to be able to ask you a question that's in their mind, that's on their heart. And it's lovely if you have, have had some kind of relationship with a person at some level, even a work friend, to the point where they feel genuinely that you're the person that they can open up to. They wouldn't do it with everybody. Might even do it to their own loved ones, but they'll open up to you because you've got their confidence. And that's wonderful when that happens. So you have to sense where the person is, where they're coming from, because we can't cast our pearls before swine. But we should be able to give a reason of the hope that is within us. So what are some of the questions? Well, there's many, but... Let me just give you a few tonight. If there is a God at all, why does He allow so much suffering to continue in this world? Now that's not an uncommon question, and it sounds a fair question. And somebody could ask you that for the most genuine reason. It really troubles them. Because if that is their view of God and it troubles them, we need to be able to give some kind of an explanation that will help them understand. If we maintain that God is a God of love, a God of compassion, a good God, He's all-powerful, why doesn't He stop it? Why doesn't He right all the wrongs? Why doesn't He deal with injustice with poverty, with pain. The world is full of disease, and death, and dying, inequality. Half the world is starving tonight. Every minute, thousands of people will die for no other reason than they're starving. They have no food. And yet half the world is obese. Well, that may be an exaggeration, but you get the idea. It just seems so unfair, doesn't it? Seems so unjust. Well, simply this world, as we often said, is not the world that used to be 
and is not the world that is yet to be. The world began as a paradise. The world will end and will be ushered into a paradise. It's the bit in between. It's the bit between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20. It's that bit where something catastrophic happened. And that catastrophic something was sin and Satan was introduced to this world. And when that happened, everything changed. At that moment, everything changed. God's paradise became paradise lost. Yes, one day it will be paradise found. But until then, the fingerprints of Satan and sin are everywhere within this world. You don't have to look very far. This world has been corrupted, has been infected with sin. And because of that, because of disease then, because of pestilences, because of natural disasters, all of that has been the result of Satan and sin. Millions upon millions of lives have been lost through evil dictators with murder and mayhem. I was watching a program the other night about Hitler uh, on the Yesterday Channel. And to think that one single individual could cause the deaths of so many millions and millions of people that plunged the whole world into a war. It's unbelievable almost that one single individual could do all of that. But that's what sin does and that's what Satan does. Okay, say, David, well, I know what the problem is. But the question is still, why doesn't God step in and stop it? Why doesn't he just stop all the effects of sin and all the effects of Satan? Would this not be a happier world we live in? Would we not be better off? Undoubtedly. So why doesn't God do it? After he's got the power to do it, so why doesn't he want to do it? Okay, which part should he stop? Which sin should he deal with first? Murder? Exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable? Child molestation? Terrorism? What about abortion or pornography? What about theft or lying or greed or jealousy or envy or pride? In fact, what about all the commandments of God that we broke? What about them? What, what, if, what if God was suddenly to demand justice instead of mercy for our sins? How would we like that? How would that work with us? Where would you like him to start? Which sin would you say, okay, okay God, go ahead and judge me? I don't think so. I don't think we would like that one bit. Sure we wouldn't. But that's what we want God to do everywhere else. With everyone else. But we don't want him to do it with us. We want God to show us mercy. But we want him to act justly against everybody else. <laughs> but what if God was to do it with us? Well, here's the good news. God has already judged Satan. And he's already judged sin. God has already judged Satan. In fact, he has passed sentence on him. The only thing is left is the execution. And that's not going to happen for a little while yet. But it's absolutely sure and certain 
And if you turn to, not now, but if you turn to Revelation chapter 20, you would see that is his, in a sense, his execution. He's already been tried in the courts of glory. He's already had his sentence passed. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. He cannot get out of it. But not just yet. That will happen in Revelation chapter 20. What about the sin question? That's already been dealt with at Calvary too, hasn't it? Christ has already died for the sins of this world. He's really dealt with the sin question. But what remains is the sinner question. The sinner question. This still remains, what shall a man do with Christ? Receive him as a savior or continue in rebellion against him? Do you know that this planet is the only planet in the universe that is in rebellion against its creator? It's the only planet in the universe that shakes its fist at Almighty God and defies God. Much of this world's problems have been brought about by man's own sinful state. But man doesn't want to deal with their personal sins, only the sinful action of others. And there is the problem. We want God to right all the wrongs, we want God to sort out all the injustices, all the unfairness of life. We want God to deal with everybody who we think is bad. But we don't want Him to deal with us. We don't want to say, God, here's my sin, deal with that first. Because that's our problem, isn't it? Of course, God puts certain laws within nature, doesn't He? And these laws that were within nature are there to help us. If we stay within the laws, then we will be uh, safe and helped and blessed. But do we do that? No, we don't. We continually flout even the very laws of nature. We pollute our atmosphere. We poison our very water systems. We do all of these things. We contaminate the very food that we eat with chemicals. We have epidemics of sexually transmitted diseases. AIDS have ravaged whole nations in Africa. We murder our elderly. We molest our children. We're addicted to violence, to drugs, to alcohol. We despise the good and the honorable and the just. And we cheer the vulgar and the cheap and the dishonorable. We have sown to the wind and we reap the whirlwind. And then after all of that, we have the audacity to blame God. After the 9-11 terrorist attack in America in 2001, September 2001, Anne Graham Lotz, who's Billy Graham's daughter, two days later she was on a CBN early talk show and she was asked the inevitable question. Jane Clayson was the interviewer. She said, I heard people say, those who are religious, those who are not, if God is good, how could God let this happen? To that you say, and here's what her reply was. I say God is also angry when he sees something like this. I would say also for several years now, Americans in a sense have shaken their fist at God and said, God we want you out of our schools, our government, our business. We want you out of our marketplace, 
And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of her national and political life and her public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. We need to turn to God first of all and say, God, we're sorry we have treated you this way and we invite you now to come into our national life. We put our trust in you. We have trust in God. We have trust in God in our coins and so we need to practice it. I think that's a good answer. And even though that speaks of America, I don't think it's any different in Great Britain, is it? I don't think it's any different in the whole of Western Europe. We don't want God in politics. We don't want him in our business. We don't want hardly want him in our schools. We don't want him in our families. We don't want him in our marriages. We don't want him to do with God. And then when it all goes pear-shaped, what do we do? We blame God. So therein lies a problem, doesn't it? And then a second question that people may ask. If God is love, how can he send anyone to hell? I said this morning when I was preempting this that this is a major, major talking point in the evangelical world today. Because a certain popular author has written a book that has caused such an absolute furore in America especially. It's a talking point. It's the biggest Twitter talking point out-twitting all the celebrities in the world today. So it's a big, big issue. It's not, an old, it's not a new issue, it's an old issue. It just keeps resurfacing. Every generation's got to deal with it. So even today, not even just the world, but today we have preachers, so-called gospel preachers, actually ask this question, well, if God's a God of love, surely He wouldn't send anybody to hell to suffer eternally. Because that doesn't sound like a God of love. So this is a big question. Well, in the first place, hell was never made for man anyway. It was made for the devil and his angels. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41. But man is a rebel against God and he will continually rebel and break God's laws. And even though God offers him salvation through his son, and even though that salvation was bought at a great price, man will continue in his rebellion. And if a man dies in that state, he cannot enter heaven for a start. Because if heaven is going to be heaven, then there will be no rebellion in heaven. If heaven is going to be heaven, then there can be no rebellion. There can be no rebels in it. There can only be those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says there'll be no sorrow in heaven, there'll be no tears, there'll be no disease, there'll be no war, there'll be no pain, there'll be no injustice. None. Be perfect. So if men live all of their lives in rejection against God's Son, why would God allow the rebellious to come into heaven? Why would He allow that rebellious, divisive, prideful spirit into paradise? The answer is, He won't. And he can't. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just. So hell is the eternal destination of all Christ rejectors. And it's real and it's literal and it is forever. 
forever. Now there's a movement today that would try to deny this, that would try to say, well, that doesn't sound like a God of love. So in other words, they're trying to figure out God on the basis of how they believe love is. And they leave God's justice aside and they concentrate on God's love. Well, if you take hell out of the equation, then an awful lot that Jesus said about hell, you may just forget about it. He didn't really mean it. Didn't really mean it. But they just sidestep that. Because it doesn't fit in with their personal feelings about God. It's not to do with our personal feelings about God. It's got to do with God's word, what he said. And Jesus was the one who talked about everlasting punishment. He talked about the place where the worm dieth not. He was the one who talked about these things. So how can we leave that out? That was never God's plan for man to go to hell. He never, never made hell for that. But those who reject Christ, those who rebel against Christ, there's no other place for them. can't be heaven. Then they say, well, God will give them a second chance. Or they say, well, there'll be a period. And then they'll realize what they've missed and God will save them. Trouble is, you can't find anywhere that in Scripture. It's just not in the Bible. It's just not there. It's just the opinion of man. Do you realize that that very belief has come right down through the generations right till today? Because Satan would love men to think there's no such place as hell. That's what he'd really love to think. But there is. And it's very real. What about those who've never heard the gospel? Does God send people to hell who've never heard of Jesus because they've never heard of Jesus? No, I don't think so. Did you hear what I just said there? Let me say it again. Does God send people to hell who have never heard of Jesus just because they've never heard of Jesus? No, I don't think so. They will go to hell if they've never heard of Jesus. They will go to hell because they never did anything with the light that they were already given. Now, God is a fair God, and He is a just God. And He gives every man some light. And the more light one has, the more responsibility one has to do with that light to get more light. You say, David, is that in the Scripture? Well, it is. Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, note this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, it's not that they didn't know truth, but they suppressed the truth that they knew. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, 
in the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies, even among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God has made the marvel of this universe we live in, in this world that we live in, and above our heads that we see every day and every night, He's made that as a witness to men that there is a God, the God, the Creator God. But what has men done, Paul said? They've dismissed that and they've worshipped the creation rather than the Creator. Is that not what men are doing today? Worshipping the creation rather than the Creator. I see in my television screens all the time, there's a program on at the minute, where one man, he is practically worshipping this wonderful, fantastic universe, this great creation, this universe, but there's not one ounce of God in it. God is totally left out of it completely. He talks about the marvels, and it is marvels, I agree with it. He talks about the marvels and the wonders of it. But there's no God in it. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, Paul said. So what about the heathen? Who's never heard of God? Would a merciful God allow them into heaven? Well, if that is the case, then we may just pull back all the missionaries. Bring them all to the mission field. In fact, we may just close our Bibles, put a lock on the door, and just forget it all. Because if that's the case, then anybody can get to heaven, and eventually all will get to heaven. So what is the point? Why bother? Simple as that. Just why bother? Is there any point to it? Might as well just keep the whole world in darkness because at the end of the day, God's going to save them anyway. And now there's the other side of that teaching that there is no hell. There is no punishment. There is no eternal judgment. Everybody will get saved eventually. God will have his way and everybody will be in heaven. Well, that sounds wonderful, but it's not in the Bible. You can't find it. It's not there. In fact, the opposite's there. That's why it says in Acts 17 and 30, but now the Lord commands all men everywhere to repent. In Genesis 18, 25, it says, shall not the God of the earth do right? Shall he not act justly? Do you think God is unjust? I don't think so. You know, Way there in Ezekiel chapter 3, in verse 16, you don't need to turn to this, just let me read this to you. Ezekiel 3, 16, Now it came to pass at the end of the seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. But in chapter 18, 
the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set in edge? Hmm. As I live, saith the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins, it shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he is not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but is restored to the debtor his pledge, he has robbed no one by violence, but has given his head bread to the hungry, has covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury or taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and have kept my judgments faithfully, he is just and he shall surely live saith the Lord so what's God saying in all of that he's saying listen every man will answer for himself that's what he's saying every man shall answer for himself including those who have never heard the gospel including those who have never heard about Jesus but God has given them some light and they have rejected that light you know, you see anthropologists and you see these people who study tribes out in the jungles and they say, you know, it's not right for missionaries to go out there and Christianize them and change their lifestyles. It's not right. They should just let them be and just let them enjoy themselves the way they've been brought up. Huh. Frightened by demons every night? Heart scared of the witch doctors? Is that the way you would like them to continue? I don't think so. I think whenever the missionaries go in and they get the true light of the gospel and they begin to realize that God is the true God, the living God, the creator of the ends of the earth, that he sent his son to die for them and they embrace that, then their whole lives change. And you've heard so many testimonies of missionaries saying how they even headhunters and cannibals, how they said that whenever they come to Christ and they even knew the true and living God, how their whole life had changed, they no longer lived under that fear. Remember the little African pastor that has spoken here a couple of times from Reach the Unreach from Kenya? Remember him saying he was, he was the son of the witchy doctor? <laughs> you remember him? Try telling him that his life was good under those days when he lived in fear every day of his young life as a little boy. No, no. Here's another question. How can people be happy in heaven, heaven knowing that their loved ones are suffering in hell? Hmm, that's a big question, isn't it? These are thorny questions, aren't they? So, David, where do you, how do you think of them? Where do you get them? Well, these are questions that people ask. Mark chapter 12. And verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind, leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise, so the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Therefore, you are greatly mistaken. In other words, Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea what heaven is like, what it's going to be like. You know, there's an awful lot that we don't know about heaven that the Bible doesn't even reveal about heaven. It's just, you know, we can just conjecture. We can have all kinds of ideas, but there's a limit to what the Bible reveals about heaven. But some things are absolutely certain and sure. And one of the things will be that there will be no sorrow and no tears in heaven. No grief, no sadness. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. The Scriptures tell us that. So we greatly underestimate the power of God and His goodness. But you say, David, if we knew, and I'm not saying we will know, but if we knew our loved ones had went to hell and we were in heaven, will we not be sad? That's a tricky question, isn't it? Well, one author puts it this way. He said that many people who lost loved ones who don't know Christ, some people argue that people in heaven won't know hell exists. For this would make heaven's joy independent, dependent upon ignorance, which is nowhere taught in Scripture. So how could we enjoy heaven knowing that a loved one is in hell? J.I. Packer, who's a great writer and theologian, often answers a difficult question with a biblical answer. It's difficult, but it's biblical. Here's what he said. God the Father, who now pleads with mankind to accept the reconciliation that Christ's death secured for all, and the Son of God, our appointed judge who wept over Jerusalem, will in a final judgment express wrath and administer justice against rebellious humans. God's holy righteousness will thereby hereby be revealed. God will be doing the right thing, vindicating himself at last against all who have defied him. And then he gives a whole wrath of scriptures to read from Matthew to Romans to Thessalonians to Revelation and so forth. And he says, in that you will clearly see that. God will judge justly, and all angels, saints, and martyrs will praise him for it, for it seems inescapable that we shall with them approve the judgment of persons, of rebels, even those whom we have known and loved. In other words, in other words, when we get to heaven and we fully appreciate, because we don't fully appreciate, the price, the incredible price Jesus paid to get us into heaven set that against those who have refused that price, who would not accept Jesus under any circumstances, and who went to a Christless grave, then we will understand God's justice better. We set that apart from that. Then we, like all of the saints and all of the martyrs, will say, 
that is just. And we'll not be sad about it. Because we'll be in the fullness of His glory. And where His glory is, there'll be fullness of joy. And there'll be no sadness. But we will understand perfectly. Now that's hard for our human minds to process. But it's quite scriptural. You know, in Revelation it says that the martyrs cried unto God, When will you avenge us? And when he did, they rejoiced. They rejoiced in God's justice. And so will we. Because we'll understand perfectly, more fuller than we ever possibly could, the reason why people are where they are today. All right, we're almost finished. Why are there so many religions? Surely they can't all be wrong. Hmm. It's often said that man's religion is his attempt to find God. It's man's way of dealing with the consequences of sin and guilt. Now some religions, they fast a lot. Some inflict pain upon themselves. You see people whipping themselves, hurting themselves climbing up mountains and bare feet. Some offer sacrifices. Some deny any pleasures in life whatsoever. Shut themselves off. Live a very monastic type of a lifestyle. Others become very mind-centered. Others body-centered. But one way or another, they're trying to express their own righteousness. That's what they're trying to do. Being ignorant of the righteousness which is in God and Christ. But Christianity is based upon repentance from dead works and faith in Jesus Christ, Acts 20. It's acceptance of God's grace and mercy, Ephesians 2. That's what it's based upon. Nothing that we can do. But we can believe in Christ. That's the only thing. So are all religions wrong? Surely they can't all be wrong. Well, surely they can't all be right. Let me turn that in its head. If somebody says, surely they can't all be wrong, you say, well, surely they can't all be right. But people think that sometimes. They think, you know, it's like a mountain and God's on top of it, and no matter what side of the mountain you climb up, as long as you get to the top, you're okay. That's what a man told me one day in Moira. Businessman this time, he told me that at the door when I talked to him. How wrong is he? Because you know what the scriptures say? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except me. Peter said in Acts 4 and 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's pretty plain, isn't it? That's letting us know there's only one way. Now that sounds arrogant, it sounds intolerant, it doesn't work very well in this pluralistic society we're in today where we have to have diversity of everything. It sounds as if it's just intolerant and it sounds arrogant, but that is the truth. That's what Jesus said, that's what Peter said, that's what Paul said. So I can't argue with that, can I? See, man is inherently religious. He will worship. You say, well, what about the atheists? Well, it's a belief system, isn't it? 
really is, isn't it? It's a belief system. I mean, they live their whole lives by it. They fight against those who believe in religion, but they've got their own belief system. It's just a belief system without God, but it's a belief system. That's what they believe. That's what they live their lives by. Why is that? Because we inherently want to worship. We inherently want to believe something. God put that within us. The Bible says He put eternity in our hearts. That's the way we're made. We're wired that way. So we either worship the truth and we worship God or we'll find something else or someone else to worship. Some system of belief, but we'll find it somewhere and we'll worship it that. That'll be our religion. Now finally, people say there's nothing beyond the grave. When you die, you die. When you're dead, you're dead. Well, what if you're wrong? What if Jesus, the Bible, and the prophets... Christians are all right and you're wrong. Eternity is a long, long, long time to make such a disastrous mistake as that, isn't it? If we Christians are wrong, then Jesus lied. The Bible is a fable. We're fools to believe it. If Christians are wrong, then there is no heaven and there is no hell and there's no judgment to come and if that is the case, then there will be no justice for all the evil that's gone unpunished, for all the wrongs that's never been righted. Does God not care about the rape victim, about the abused child, about the slaughter of the innocents? Will there be no final, ultimate justice and judgment for all of those things? Does that seem fair? Does that seem right? I don't think so. There has to be judgment. There has to be a day of reckoning. Otherwise, all the injustices we say, all the things you watch on television say, that's not right. That's not fair. They get off on a technicality. They're as guilty as sin, but look look at them. They get off on a technicality. That can't be right. And it isn't right. But one day, God will right that wrong. And you see, in eternity, there'll be all eternity to right all of the wrongs to make all the unjust things just. God will right all the wrongs. So we have to believe in eternity. We have to believe in a judgment day to come. We have to believe in a reckoning because that is fair and God is just and God's fair. Luke 12 and 15 and 21, Jesus tells the parable of the man who said, look, he said, I'm doing very well. I've got all these crops coming in. Uh, and my barns is not big enough to fill them, so what I'll do is I'll build bigger barns. And I'll fill them. And then I'll take my ease, and I will eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The implication is, what's the point of tomorrow? We're going to die. So we might as well just live for today. Forget about tomorrow. Tomorrow doesn't mean anything. There's nothing beyond the grave. It's all happening today. And that is the mantra of many today, isn't it? Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. You're a long time dead, so you might as well forget it. Just live for today. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? That's not what scriptures say. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the great resurrection chapter, Paul talks about this. He talks about the afterlife. He talks about the resurrection from the dead. He talks about that day and that hour and the other side 
it will all be too. And in further passages, he talks about the judgment seat of Christ. And then John talks about the great white throne of judgment. So there is a whole eternity to come. There is something beyond the grave. Thank God there is. One of the blessings when you do a funeral, when you bury someone who has known the Lord, is to know that that is not the end. If you thought that was the end. Paul says, if we, if, we, if we have Christ only in this life, he says, we're of men most pitiable. That's a big statement to make, isn't it? Because he says there's a whole of eternity with Christ. Time's just a little part of it, isn't it? And so there are many, many questions that people will ask. A lot more than I shared tonight, believe me. Many questions. Search the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures and say, this is what the Bible says. And if you haven't got an answer, don't try to give them some answer. Say, that's a good question. Thank you very much. I don't have the answer right now, but if you just give me a couple of days, I'll get back to you, and I will have an answer for you. At least that way you're being honest, aren't you? Appreciate you being honest people, don't they? Come on, let's pray. Lord, your word says that we have to contend earnestly for the faith. Lord, we have to struggle. We have to agonize over these things. We have to search and look and find out because somebody's soul may be at stake. Somebody's eternal future may be at stake. Lord, this is our generation. This is our day. We've just got a short time on this earth to make a difference to somebody. Lord, help us to be able to do that. To be able to speak a word in season. Especially, Lord, in these days of turmoil that we live in where people's hearts are concerned and they're wondering and they're worried and they're fretting. Lord, help us to be able to give answers. Help us to point them to the cross. Help us, Lord, to keep eternity in our thoughts. Lord, that's the big picture. Not to be so bogged down with the daily things of life that we forget the big picture. Lord, bless Christianity explored on Wednesday nights. Thank you for all the effort that this team is putting in. And Lord, we pray that a soul will come rejoicing. That a man or a woman will come and know and find Christ. And Lord, that will just make it all worthwhile. That an eternal soul has been saved, has been won to Christ. So Lord, bless them, Lord, as they meet and as they share around the table in conversation and praying for other, others, Lord. We just pray that you'll bless them. We pray that this week that new additions will come. That others, Lord, who missed the first week will come the second week and the third week. Lord, you know those out there, Lord, that you're dealing with. You know the hearts that your Holy Spirit's already touching. And Lord, we know the struggle that goes on inside our own hearts before we get saved. Lord, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will just draw them. Lord, we commit it to you. Our loved ones, 
our friends, our workmates, those that we go to uni with, those, Lord, that we're in daily contact with, in our office in the workplace, Lord, where there is opportunity, where we get the chance, help us, Lord, to be bold and just to take it and to share a word for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.